Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm your host, Marcus Gillis, and we are recording live from Banjo, Colorado. Population growing. Welcome to episode number 34 of the Live from Banjo podcast. How is Crystal Gillis doing today? You know, I'm here. I'm a little sleepy. I had what the kids will call a two-a-day today. I had my session with my personal trainer this morning and I went climbing at the climbing gym this afternoon. So I'm beat down, exhausted. And I think that 11 p.m. is too late at night to record a wrap up. That that sounds understandable. We were on a road trip recently and thanks to the fans for not robbing our home while we were away. And then while we were away, we came up with one of our new Yogi Berra sayings and it was something along the lines of Oh my gosh, I got this. If you're a jack of all trades, then you don't have time to zip up your pants or something like that. It was very close. A jack of all trades makes you a master of having an unzipped fly. That sounds accurate. It needs to be workshopped a bit. But it is a description of myself. It is definitely a description of yourself. You are a jack of all trades and also your fly is down. I'd say a solid, we'll go 70 to 80% of the time. I don't, I think that's. No, I don't know if other people that know us would notice it as much as I do because I'm your wife and I don't think that staring at your jungle area is gross or weird or awkward or uncomfortable. Other people might, but yeah, I mean, if someone knows you, they have definitely seen your fly down. I don't go commando very no, often. No, so you're it's not, not exposing like, yourself. It's not you're like just, a, your fly is almost always down. But I do remember when we went up to see Daniel Rodriguez up in Nederland. And your fly was down. And he was like selling hot dogs or something along those lines. Oh dear. I didn't hear him say that. That's quite funny. Anyway, today we are here to talk about Jeffrey Martin. And I came into Jeffrey's music and his songwriting recently and I'm a fan in the fanatical sense of the word fan. You get a little fanatical. I truly love his songwriting voice style. Those that already know Jeffrey's music will understand my love at first song, Head Over Heels, Slightly Abnormal Infatuation with Jeffrey's music, and to set the record straight in keeping my marriage intact and Crystal as the beloved co-host of the Live from Banjo podcast, I'm going to announce here and now that Crystal introduced me to Jeffrey's music. I did it. I found good music. The asterisk is officially removed from the record books. And I am announcing here and now that I think Coal Fire is in the top 100 songs of all time. Though it's not a contest. Mm, you make everything a contest. And I just think it's, you know, one of my greatest achievements in our marriage to have good taste in music and to be able to introduce you to things. So if I'm going to keep our marriage intact, I feel like I need to uh, every once in a while come to the table with something you actually appreciate. But I still introduce you to Coal Fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coal Fire was not the song that I think I pushed you towards. It was Build a Home. That was the first song I had you listen to. I thought it was Golden Thread. Mm -mm. Okay. All right. So Jeffrey Martin, born in San Antonio, Texas, is a singer-songwriter who actually grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and is currently based out of Portland. Oregon. Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and is currently based out of Portland, Oregon. And the beautiful Portland, Oregon. And if you've ever been to Portland, then you understand why it is called Portland because <laughs> it's a land of ports. Yeah. But it's also beautiful in the surrounding areas. But he writes with a connection to human emotion and a manner of description that allows listeners to sit in a room or stand if you prefer 
and I have arthritis, so sometimes I prefer to stand. But either way, his writing allows you to be a part of the room and watch the story unfold before your eyes. His use of metaphor gives a sense that two things are one and that we as humans, nature, society are truly connected. Growing up, Jeffrey's father loved music and mentored Jeffrey to truly listen to the music, listen to the words, not just bop your head along to the song. His uncle then gave Jeffrey a 1970s Takamine that Jeffrey can still be seen playing today. In his teens, Jeffrey began his secret life as a songwriter and then headed off to college. And he had some pivots at this point in his life, but eventually led to his double life of school teacher by day and Cape Crusader slash singer-songwriter by night. Jeffrey ultimately took off his Clark Kent disguise and dedicated his life to being a full-time musician and songwriter. As a solo artist, Jeffrey has released multiple EPs and three full-length albums to date since his first album in 2009. In today's conversation, we gain a little insight into his musical future. Since recording this interview, Jeffrey does have a small West Coast tour planned in December and one date in Nashville in September. So if you are lucky enough to live in the West or Northwest, check out Jeffrey's tour dates and go see him live. For the rest of us, we will just have to wait for the right time, hopefully sooner than later. So are there any cool cities on the list? Yeah, they're all cool. Can we go? Because now I really want to see him in person. Sure. You're not going to take this opportunity to list off any of the cities that he's playing in? No. No, you can go to the show notes and uh, you can find out all of his tour dates. I didn't list off the tour dates on this, Crystal. I just thought maybe you would have a couple that you're like, yeah, let's go check out. All right. So anyway, a little bit of house cleaning before Jeffrey and I's conversation. I do want to say that I make a joke about Delta Airlines. And so that I don't get sued by Delta, I was making a bad joke about the Delta variant of COVID-19, which is not a joking matter, but I make a lot of bad jokes in life and I hope it's not a cancelable offense, but I just wanted to note I don't think Delta Airlines is going to wreak havoc on the music industry. I don't know if there's any history there, but I was not personally making a reference to the actual Delta Airlines in Jeffrey and I's conversation. Next, I address a description of a friend of mine that fell into a coma when I was younger. And when he came out of the coma, he had suffered massive brain damage as a result of lack of oxygen to the brain. And I said that when he came out, he was mentally retarded. It felt wrong when I said it, but I wasn't sure what the correct description was. I listened back and felt uncomfortable again. And so I looked it up. And though that term is still used in a non-derogatory way, the increasingly used term is intellectually disabled. Did I say it weird again? Intellectually disabled. And I don't think you said it wrong, but it does feel better to say it that way. I don't know. So if my words are triggering for anybody, I apologize, but I grew up in the 80s and was not up to speed. And though, as I said, mentally retarded from what I could gain on the internet is still acceptable. It sounds wrong. It feels wrong. I appreciate you addressing and actually being curious enough to go out and find some more information on it. I think that's what learning is, I think. Anyway, you guys will get to that. And thank you so much for everyone that is listening. Please tell your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. 
And again, please follow us on Instagram at Live from Banjo Podcast. Find me on Facebook at Marcus Gillis at Live from Banjo Podcast. If you enjoy the show and want to keep us around for the foreseeable future, please go out to the World Wide Web and make your way over to Patreon.com and become a patron at Patreon.com backslash Live from Banjo Podcast. Please follow us or subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and set your reminder so you never miss an episode. So, Crystal, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Sure. If you were to give a single reason why to join us on Patreon, what would it be? I've got two. Can I have two? I'll give you two. Okay. You talk. Give me two. Angelo, it's only 1030. Something along those lines. Okay. Hopefully no one else knows what that's from either. We can all just be confused together. One, I would say the interview extras. And number two, just simply supporting Live from Banjo podcast. We're coming up on almost episode 40 and episode 50 is kind of our deciding point on whether or not we want to stick with this. But I want to keep with it. I know you do. And I think from the perspective of a lot of the musicians, it sounds like they are really enjoying your interview style. They're really enjoying having these conversations. And uh, it sounds like there's a lot of support on that end. They appreciate being interviewed by someone who is as stalkery as you are. All right. My misfire quote was from Point Break and it was Keanu Reeves talking with Gary Busey. Anyway, so Crystal. Mm hmm. What's up in the wrap-up tonight? Uh, in the wrap-up tonight, we talk about the Beat Riders, William Burroughs and Jack Kerouac. And we talk about John Prine and his last album that he put out. I should have been more clear. You go on a very long deep dive on William Burroughs. You didn't guess, but I did tell you what actor Jeffrey's voice reminds me of when he's speaking. Maybe I'll cut a little Burroughs. <laughs> and that is all. That is all we discussed in the wrap-up today. Not a single other thing. And now, please enjoy my conversation with the alluring and thoughtful Jeffrey Martin. Hey, Marcus, you there? Yes, sir. Hey, man. Do you have an echo? I can hear you real good. I don't. I don't hear any echo. Well, that is fantastic. So, how you doing? I'm. I'm good. I'm. I was just telling Anna. I got home yesterday from a long day working on this house that I'm working at, and I just don't feel like a musician these days. So it's a little strange to be doing a podcast right now about that, but whatever. Well, that's okay. This is really a human podcast. Oh, good. I just happen to <laughs> mostly enjoy talking to musicians, but you know, doing the carpentry thing is also uh, is also worthwhile in the world. Yeah, it is. It's just it's some days it's so hard to hold in my head. Last week I had a. A weird show in Portland here and kind of went from the job site to that show pretty much. And it was just a mind trip to me, but I'm just anxious to get back into a world where I can like tune my mind just to music and touring and leave it there for a while. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully someday I'll join you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I never get to, to make that shift or haven't yet in my yeah. 41 years, but. It took me a while. Like I did music for a long time, maybe, uh, eight years while I was doing construction and then teaching high school after that and kind of got my first taste of all in with music in late 2016. And I noticed that you, you don't have a lot of live dates booked yet. Is, is that something you're just working on 
scheduling or it's kind of like i just had to cancel some dates for early september that was supposed to be over in the uk and those were the only dates i had floating around publicly and i just kind of made the decision with my booker and, and manager like let's hold stuff close to the chest right now okay it's just partly because it breaks my heart to announce stuff and kind of talk to people or get responses from people in the area that I might be torn through and then have to cancel those shows. And I just would rather, uh, I don't know, keep it quiet for a little bit, but definitely working on some stuff for fall and winter and just kind of waiting to feel out how things are going to look in the country when we come out of summer. and Just seeing if Delta Airlines is going to fuck everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm definitely crossing my fingers, man, big time. I would really love to have a filled up fall winter. So I guess the most recent thing you put out was I Know What I Know. Yeah, yeah. And tell me if I'm off base, but from what I can gather, it's from like a closed-minded person that wants to lock in the borders. And I kind of think it's yeah. beautiful how you then drew in the Woody Guthrie. Oh, thanks. And uh, I think, you know, this irony of the completely misinterpreted understanding of Guthrie's lyrics by some folks. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that is working to be a part of a bigger thing, or is that just kind of a, a one-off that you felt needed to be out mm. in the world? I've been working a collection of songs for the last year and a half or at least working intensely on them for that long and and then that song is kind of an outlier it, it definitely came out of the pandemic and stuff and it came out of this place in me that was kind of i was getting really angry i was just i realized i was spending day after day after day in this weird loop of like read the news get angry try to do something else read the news and get angry and, and then i met up with a good buddy of mine and just kind of told him how I was feeling about that stuff and how I was angry at certain people in the country who seemed to have an alternate reality about things. And, and he really gently kind of pointed out some things to me that maybe were blind spots for myself, maybe alternate realities that I had created for myself also. And that it really hit me. It was really uh, sobering to kind of realize that that's not a, that's not a trait of one group or one side that's just like a human trait it's something that we do and so i wrote that song and was hesitant to put it out actually because i didn't want it to be received as clearly from one side speaking to the other side and i think people already make the assumption you know if you're if you're a musician if you're a singer songwriter then people assume at least if you're from portland that you're pretty liberal-minded but i really didn't want it to be heard as some accusation against conservatives or against Trump supporters or against anybody specific. Well, I'm only speaking from one person's perspective, but when I heard it in your lyrics, I don't, I don't know how much Anna talked to you, but I kind of recently came across your music and since coming and then diving into your lyrics, I feel that you kind of like Anna, which is not surprising that you guys would be close, have an empathy in your lyrics. And when I listened to that song, hmm. I assume that maybe you had a opposite feeling about the country and the world maybe than the, the perspective that you were writing from. But I did feel an empathy for those people and those folks and, and what they're holding onto and and where they're coming from. Yeah, there is a lot of that. I mean, I feel like it might just be luck that, I don't even know how to say this, but mostly in that song, in writing it, I realized that there are the pieces in me are there to be just as convinced of something that might not be true as it is in anybody else. And, and maybe in this time, the thing I'm convinced of 
you know, happens to be more true or maybe the data or something is in my favor. But but I don't I really don't. I could see myself in a different time or in a different situation being really convinced of something that's not necessarily real. And yeah, I don't know. So as much as it was like a statement about other people, it was kind of a message to myself to kind of check myself. And yeah, I don't know. But it's weird. It's hard to walk that line sometimes, especially with songwriting that I like to do. I like to write about things that feel important to me. And oftentimes that comes right up to the line of being divisive or being something that's going to draw lines in the sand or something with listeners. And Yeah. I just have a ton of respect for, you know, people like John Prine, who was undeniably political in his own way and had huge things to say about everything he wanted to talk about and somehow still maintained enough, you know, empathy, like you said, in his songwriting to not alienate people and That's the goal, I think. Yeah, I think there are those special people. I was just watching a documentary on Bob Dylan and people that seemed to know him said he is not a political person, (laughs) (laughs) which is funny to think about in in that way. But I think there's people that are making statements and bringing thoughts like that into the world that they're not necessarily looking at an end game of what that's going to be. Right. And I think that's what makes people like Prine and, and Dylan loved by the masses in a, a way that's different than some. But it is, it's hard not to alienate. I even on this show, like sometimes I'll say things and I'll be like, ah, should I, yeah. should I not yeah. have said that? Cause I don't, I'm not trying to push out people. I'm just right. kind of saying how I feel or what I feel. But I, I do understand that I am not the end all do all to knowing what is going on in the world. I just have my own thoughts. Yeah. There was a line in that I Know What I Know song, what is that? It's um, the simpler it is, the easier it is to preach. Mm. And I had such a hard time with that line because it, it says exactly what I want to say. And I know that just by using the word preach, it could sound like, you know, some sort of an indictment of religious people or religious communities. And mm. my dad, while I was growing up, my dad was a pastor in Eugene, Oregon. And so I grew up in the church and I know that there's so much, you know, in the religious community that I have a ton of respect for. And I really value a lot of people and a lot of perspectives that come out of that community. And at the same time, like that line needed to be written that way. And I I just, I remember after I wrote it, I called my dad and sent that song to him and said, just, am I unnecessarily going to piss off, you know, religious people? And (laughs) yeah, it was great. His response was kind of like, you know, this is a time that we desperately need discussions that lead to nuance and complexity and more discussion. And if somebody hears that line and they shut down and assume that you're just pissed at religious people, then they're not ready to have a discussion anyways, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I feel like, you know, this is my own anecdotal experience with the world, but my whole life I've lived around people that have been on very opposite sides of the coin. And I don't know if it's because I've been around a lot of different types of people or it's just the way all of it has kind of gone into who I am. But I, I do feel like I play the devil's advocate in a lot of conversations yeah. with, with a lot of people. And it's not because I want to be an asshole 
I just, yeah. I also want people to see things from hopefully another perspective. Yeah. I mean, everything, everything has layers. The more we can, I don't know, illuminate those layers. It's always good. I think I love the, like in 2019 and 18, I was playing a lot of uh, house shows around the world or our country. And it's, it's so fascinating to go from like, you know, playing a house show in the Northwest or on the West coast, you know, and very in some really um, liberal area and then to fly out to Texas to the Southeast and play a string of shows down there. And I get a little bit nervous sometimes depending on where I'm playing, thinking about what songs I'm going to play and how they're going to be received. But every single time I'm amazed and, and reminded uh, just that people are the same level of complicated everywhere you go. And I love that I can go to like Dallas, Texas and play a house show for people whose politics are very different than mine, mm -hmm. but they love the songs and they love that the songs are maybe trying to stab at something that transcends the political moment. And I, I don't know. It's just, it's been really great to be able to crash into people that way. And I think that just music is one of those times where you can go out and you could look across a crowd and you're all having this kind of a similar experience with completely different thoughts about what's going on in the world, even yeah. understanding yeah. what is happening in the music. Like you're, it's your experience, you know, it, I've written songs my whole life and, and so I've been fortunate to be able to be on that side of the coin of understanding that what you are putting out in the world, that is not what people are going to experience. Right. Right. Like yeah. even my wife will hear a song that I wrote and she has no idea. And I feel like it is just like, here it is. This is exactly right. what I'm saying. And she's yeah. like, well, I, I, I mean, it sounds pretty, but I, I have no idea what that song's about. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, this is, this is clear as day. Like this is, yeah. this is, this is what it is. And with poetry yeah. and, yeah. writing and and everything it it just uh you know people get to have their they get to have their own interpretation and they get to experience it their own way and and uh i think that's a beautiful thing though yeah me too me too so you were talking about the fact that your dad was a preacher or pastor and yeah. that's what he was doing in eugene when you were growing up there but you were born in san antonio right yeah born in san antonio but but left there when i was real young so i feel like most of me is a product of the northwest and yeah um, how young is real young i just i moved around a lot when i was a kid so i'm interested to see what what age you got to eugene like i was doing elementary school in eugene Okay. I don't remember what age actually I was when we moved out there, but early in those years. And then and then never really went back until I was like I didn't go back to Texas till I was eighteen or so and been back a bunch since and really love it. I really love Texas a lot, but but I'm so thankful that my folks decided to move out to Oregon. <laughs> really, it's just yeah, it's great. We had moved around a lot. We went from like California to London, back to California hmm. to Texas, and then I moved to just north of Atlanta, Georgia, when I was seven, and that's I consider myself from Georgia. Funny because I didn't. I ended up going to school in Athens, Georgia, but uh, I always knew when I grew up in quotes, I was not going to live in Houston or hmm. Atlanta. That was just not where I wanted to be. 
Yeah. I have a like really clear memories of when we first moved out to Oregon from Texas and just being overwhelmed by the, the greenery and the just the height of everything, just yeah. mountains and trees. And, mm. and then just didn't realize until I was older how amazing it is to, you know, in Eugene and Portland, you're 30, 40 minutes from 10 rivers and 10 lakes and a forest somewhere. And when I tour back through the South now, I just, I don't know, I really appreciate the space that still exists in the Northwest and how easy it is to get lost, like truly lost. Like, like if I wanted to, I could drive you know, an hour and a half right now and then walk an hour and a half and possibly die. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. And no, that's no, like no. a good feeling kind of, I don't know. I completely understand that. And I try and my daughter, she was born in Western Colorado. She lived out here uh, in Denver for a bit. And then her mom and I split up and she moved back across when she was really young. Like I think she had just turned three. But she's grown up in Colorado and she's grown up going back and forth across the pass, through the mountains, more than most people should ever have to do in their life, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like she just lives in this place of beauty and we travel a lot and we camp and we're like a rock climbing family. And yeah. and I just, I'm like, you'll get it one day, but you don't realize how lucky you are, the, the like majesty that you just get to experience on a weekend. Yeah. People travel the world to come to be a part of this. I left my whole life just to move to Colorado because I, I loved this place. Yeah. I only wish that the that the Northwest, the culture of the Northwest could swap out. I don't know what it is. There's like a, like when I go to the South or when I go to the East Coast, there's a in your face, like this is how I am. This is who I am that people have. Mm-hmm. That a lot of people in the Northwest, I feel like, maintain this like laid back, like passive aggressiveness. <laughs> yeah. And I just want some like, uh, I don't know, it just feels so refreshing to go to Texas and have people be just genuinely, loudly kind and like in your face about their ideas and what they're going to feed you for dinner. I miss that stuff. but. Yeah, no, no, I do. I, I say the one thing about the South is I just wish I could take all my friends from the South and, and <laughs> yeah. put them out here and then this place would be heaven. Yeah. So your dad was a pastor. And so when you went to Eugene, was he going there to start a church or, or what brought what brought you guys out there? Yeah, he he got out of seminary in Dallas and... Uh, the story he tells is that they kind of showed him this map of the country and all the most and least churched regions and offered him some cush pastoring jobs in Texas where he could just work at a church that's guaranteed 5,000 person congregation or something. And, and he just saw Eugene as a big blank spot on the map and a bunch of hippie heathens out here. <laughs> and he said, let's go there. And <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... We did that, and he started a church that kind of, it was like the manifestation of his immense compassion for people that are going through a dark time, you know, down and out people on the street or almost on the street. And it was a brilliant way to grow up. It was really involved. It just made me aware of Eugene at all of its levels and became kind of first name basis friends with people on the street who I knew through church or through some of the outreach stuff the church would do kind of 
food drives and clothing drives and stuff. And yeah, it just felt pretty great looking back. Like I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but looking back, it was a great way to grow up. And definitely not the typical pastor's kid experience, I think, based on the other pastor's kids I've met in my life. Do you call PK when you were a kid? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. People call you Jeffrey. I mean, it, it sounds yeah. like people actually call you Jeffrey. Like people called me Marcus. When I grew up, people called me Mark. And it kind of drove me crazy a little bit because that wasn't my name. Yeah. And then all of a sudden in high school, there was just a couple of kids that slipped in that started calling me Marcus. And when I went to college, I just, I cut off that Mark shit. I was just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't really till music or even still like in music now, I'm definitely Jeffrey. Yeah. You know, but I have some old friends that I grew up with, you know, who don't call me Jeffrey unless they're giving me shit for something. They call you Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like the Mark thing for me. I go back to Atlanta. It's the only place on the planet where yeah. anybody calls me Mark. Or but my dad's, that church kind of ended um, around the time I was 18, oh. uh, 17, 18. It was kind of shown its cracks um that's a whole big story but so then i left for college at 18 and had a pretty bitter taste in my mouth at that point about all organized religion mm. and not through any fault of my parents it was just a political ugly mess when that church fell apart yeah and uh so I, f I feel like in the last i'm 36 now and in the last maybe eight or six years I've started to soften on some of those pretty angry feelings about church. Not soften enough to go back, but soften enough to open my mind a little again. I, uh, I had an interesting experience, I guess, with that. I was, I was pretty heavily involved in the church up until probably roughly 13 or so. And, uh, but I really had an experience where I started having friends that were different religions. And, uh, I just got really angry about the idea of a religion that all my friends were going to hell right. because they didn't mm -hmm. believe in this thing. Yeah, And I just said, I can't get on board with that. I moved to Japan when I was 21, studied Buddhism a lot, and I studied a lot of other religions. Oh, and cool. and I kind of realized over the course of my time that, like, we're all trying to say the same thing mm -hmm. for the most part. You know, I mean, that's, that's a broad statement, but, like, just be a good person. Yeah. Take care of folks, friends, family, neighbors, and uh, try and... Just try and mostly be a good person. And I think that if you just kind of follow those guidelines, whether there's something at the end or there's not, you know, like it's just yeah. best practice. And then I, yeah. my current wife, Crystal, who does this wrap up with me at the end of the show, she, she's damn near an atheist. Like it's just like <laughs> damn, near. damn near. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this woman loves the outdoors more than anything in the world and she loves nature and she, she has some stuff, but she grew up Iowa corn farmer and, and she is one of the nicest people that I've ever met in the world. Just kind, caring, yeah. thoughtful, and there's no end goal. Right. You know right. what I mean? She's just, that right. is just who she is. And it reshifted my thinking once again of like, oh, there is literally nothing on the other side of that other mm -hmm. than that is just what she is trying to do is just to be a good person. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind yeah. of amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is. But, uh, 
you know, me as a selfish person in the world, I was just always trying to do good just, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, as I've gotten older, especially, and I realized that, you know, you can't really paint anything with a broad brush and do it justice. And, you know, and so there's, you know, for all the close minded, fearful people that are in the church, there's some golden hearts in there too. And the, the thing that I'm thinking a lot about these days is the idea of accountability and community just as structures. And um, there's, a, there's a component to religion that I think is really appealing in that way and really valuable on a societal level where you have small groups of like-minded people that all share a physical community, but also share you know, some common values and ideologies. And like, I think it's really hard to be a good person in a vacuum or in isolation. I think it's really hard to be kind in in the same way. Like you need to be bumping into people and being able to do something about that kindness instead of just having it in your head. And I don't know how that'll shake out for me. I just, I just sort of like the idea of finding some sort of I don't know if you'd call it like a secular community. Like I don't want to. I don't want to like join a softball team right now, but some sort of community outside music and outside, you know, work stuff that's just purely good people talking about good ideas and trying to do good things. Yeah, I agree. If you come to Denver and you want to get into a bowling league, oh shit, I love bowling. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I do too. I don't know why. I just <laughs> I don't know why. It's, either, one, of the, it's one of those things. I just I just love bowling. I don't know. I have a great bowling song I wrote with a buddy. I'll send it to you. Oh, perfect. Good. <laughs> I was thinking I should write a bowling song. I'll just rip off yours and play it at open mics. <laughs> I don't know. I was doing this thing for a while, and I've gotten away from it. Like I was in that kind of same headspace. Like I just needed do something that's not for myself, not for my family. And uh, I started helping out at this horse farm nearby that they they do like horse lessons for um, people with mental disabilities and physical disabilities or just like horses for healing kind of yeah, yeah, you know, deal, and and I would just go and I would just clean stalls at like five thirty in the morning, like once a week, and I did it for a long time, and I felt really good, you know, because we do stuff selfishly, we do stuff for yeah, others so that yeah. we can feel good about ourselves, and then I just got to a point where I'm like, I'm so busy, I just I don't have time, but I did feel a lot better at that time. I didn't want to drink at that time, so hmm. maybe it's something I should get back to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It always amazes me how little. I don't know, getting up at 5.30 to clean up horse shit sounds like a big gesture to me, but it doesn't take a massive, you know, I don't know, I think sometimes we can talk ourselves out of doing something good because we think that would be too big or take up too much time, or but it could be such a little thing. Yeah. Um, that's what it felt like at the time, and then, then it just grew bigger and bigger in my head, And but that was probably uh, just my head growing smaller or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so your dad was preaching when you were young, but your mom, was she around when you were? Yeah. Yeah. My mom was home with us kids and trying to survive all our bullshit and and being a pastor's wife is no small job either. And no, no, no. They're both together. They're both in Eugene still. Well, that is fantastic. When I was growing up, there was two things I said that I was never going to do. 
was never going to get a divorce <laughs> and I was never going to be a stepdad because it, <laughs> it just seemed like being a stepdad was the hardest job I ever saw in the world, even though I never had a stepdad, I had a stepmom, but I don't want to be a step parent. It's going to be awful. And I, uh, I don't want to leave my kid in a broken home. Yeah. And I, I failed on both accounts. I was a step parent, which <laughs> I am no longer. And I also created a broken home. So, you know, lofty oh, goals, yeah. I guess, as a, a young kid. But, you know, we, uh, we live on. Man, when I was uh, from like 2014 or 13 to 16, I was teaching high school full-time English and and uh, getting like as a teacher, especially as a writing teacher, you get these windows into your students' lives that sometimes are just they're like too much, you know, just through the writing or through conversations or through a parent teacher conference where a parent will just like unload all of a sudden. And but it was, I, re I realized that I had some pretty old, like calcified ideas in my head about, you know, what a broken family even is or what a dad is what a mom is and i just i met some brilliant adults while i was teaching who were in all sorts of unconventional situations raising their kids or raising friends of their kids or i don't know it just it was really uh, a really great kind of shift of my thinking and people that show up and people that show up in the right ways they have like a a light to them and it really doesn't matter what the backstory is at that point you know I just, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I try and show up. Sounds like you do. I love my daughter. I, I wasn't as close to my uh, stepson, admittedly, but, but I felt like we were close. Like I was a soccer coach and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I tried to do things to be involved, but I was just thinking about this today and I was writing in my journal, which of course I'll now say it in a podcast, go out <laughs> into the world because that's <laughs> smart, <laughs> my private thoughts. But I was just thinking about my stepdaughter and my wife had had her first son this is nothing negative against her but she had had her first son during high school teenage pregnancy yeah. wasn't with the father second father she fell in love and uh and then he passed away in a car accident and i met her when my say stepdaughter now but my you say my daughter was a year and three months old and uh and we didn't start dating for a couple of months after that, but I, I just fell in love with that girl. And I think I stayed with the woman, you know, as a result of my love for that kid. You know, it's just, uh, yeah. I still love her, even though I don't get to see her. I love that kid. I mean, how old are you? Can I ask? I'm 41. Oh, that's great. I love, there are some stories like this that make life seem really long in an encouraging way. If that makes any sense. It does. I'm trying can. to stretch it out as long as I can. <laughs> Anything I can do. So just give me all the advice. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't know. Like we all go through these seasons and... Yeah, I never, I never knew the the term of seasons in the sense of like our lives. And I dated a therapist. It was actually like the one girl I dated the longest in between my my daughter's mom and my current wife. And she used the word seasons. And ever since then, it's made so much sense. <laughs> yeah, I just totally. just that one little word added to our human experience has helped me. When you're writing tunes. Are you trying to write, like, do you write about direct experience stuff or direct history, family stuff? Or You know, I've been 
super prolific lately. It's been kind of a, I think I heard in an interview where you were talking about like, it's almost coming back to songwriting. Yeah. And I was in an experience where I just, I played music and did music as like a hobby, but I never stopped writing songs. And I realized that a lot of it starts with my personal experience and some of them it is just a straight dump from my life or whatever the metaphor is that I'm writing about just as a yeah. straight dump from my life. But sometimes it's a nugget from my life that inspires me to write about the story of another. Or sometimes yeah. I'll just just hear something in somebody else's experience and, and write from that perspective. How about yourself? Well, I think from early on, maybe. I, when I was 18, 19, I really started trying to write, mm -hmm. even though I didn't tell anybody that for five more years. But <laughs> yeah. But it was also the same time that my, f I, th I think the shit has to hit the fan in everybody's family at one point or another. And that was definitely the time in our family. And, and the, the church was like falling apart and there's just like a lot going on. And I, f I felt like songwriting at the time was a way to escape all that emotion. You know, and I, I hear people talk about writing and songwriting often is like, you know, a way to process a hard emotion, you know, like catharsis. Kind yeah, of. like put it in the song and just say it how it is and sing about it and whatever. And I think for me at the time, it was, I intentionally kept some distance between the two. And, and, and looking back, you know, I can listen to old songs of mine and realize, oh, like you thought you were keeping distance, but really you, you were writing about exactly what was happening in your heart. You thought that your closest person in the world would know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you thought it would be a mirror. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's strange, not strange, not a, it's not bad, but I think there's a special relationship that singer-songwriters specifically have with their audience because so much of this type of music is like obviously lyric focused and a lot of the shows are more simple and less pyrotechnics and it's just you know it's like here's the song or like here's a page from my journal in song form and yeah it's interesting it's been interesting to learn how to navigate this the like social interaction piece of being a songwriter because I can get up on any stage and close my eyes and sing for 45 minutes, no problem. And I don't care what I'm singing about for the most part. But as soon as that show's over and there are people that want to share about, you know, how a song affected them and, and how that pertains to their specific life experience. And, or they have a question about, you know, does this line in this song mean that you're a Seventh-day Adventist or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. It, it doesn't. And I don't know. I kind of, I feel like there are some things that I've never written about um, because I don't want to go there in song form. Mm. And I don't want to maybe crack that door to the audience yet. And I wonder if, you know, some days I think that's fine. There's stuff that's mine. There's stuff that I'll, if I do write about it, I'll shroud it in vague mystery and I don't need to be explicit about everything. And some days I think, well, I need to do that someday to fully claim this thing that I'm doing. Well, I am at that point in my life. I write all the time, it seems, these days. Whenever I am not doing my 18,000 jobs, <laughs> I just want to be writing. And uh, I'm at a point in my life right now where I am putting those harder topics out there 
mm. as a way to just cleanse myself. I've done it with this show. Like I was molested as a child. I'm not mm. trying to ask for sympathy. Like yeah. some of these things that like guided me on a path and early drug use and then eventually becoming an alcoholic and and things yeah. like that that I, I'll talk about now on the show uh, in a way that I wouldn't talk about it to the closest person in the world to me. You know, I just hid so many things yeah. for so long. And I'm trying to write some of those things into a song at this point in my life just because, you know, I, I want to get rid of the baggage, I guess. Like, I yeah. think that maybe the more and more I put it out in the world, my wife calls it shining the flashlight in the yeah. dark corner. But, like, I just want to, I kind of want to be done with some of it and not worried about it. So a couple of avenues where I feel like I can be completely genuine and open. One is therapy. One is the show and now songwriting. When I was younger, I would play my punk rock high school basement stuff. And, you know, maybe there was some of me in there that I was hiding in the form of characters, but I would never write about myself. Yeah, yeah. It was always a character. It was always hidden, no matter right. what I was talking about. Right, yeah, totally. Me too. I mean, huge hero of mine. But beyond that, when I was writing or first writing, anytime I got stuck or felt like I could never write ever again, I'd always go back and read Bob Dylan lyrics. And I still do that now. But it's interesting now because over the years, my perspective on Dylan or my understanding has changed. And it's fascinating to realize that there's so little, almost no Bob Dylan in any Bob Dylan song. <laughs> Um, and I, th I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. You know, I mean, conversely, there, there are a lot of songwriters in the world who I think should put a whole lot less of themselves <laughs> in their songs. Finding that balancer, knowing, like, I have some new songs now that feel terrifyingly raw and vulnerable. And I'm not even playing them out anywhere. I don't even play them for Anna. I don't know why. I just, I feel like this project that I'm working on I really want to just release an album's worth of songs into the world without having toured on it for a year and a half beforehand or, you know, without playing the songs a bunch before. But but it is a it's kind of energizing. I like the the kind of uncertainty of songs that are that raw and wondering, like, you know, if I do record this song and put it out, like, do I need to call my mom and have a conversation first? I don't know. I'll just give you ads up. I didn't think my dad ever listened to this show. And it turns out we had to have some conversations as a result. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, it is tough. On your last album, you had this song, I believe it's called One Go Around, or on the album it's called One Go Around, but you have a song called Billy Burroughs mm -hmm. that's about William Burroughs accidentally killing his girlfriend, yeah. common law wife, whatever, uh, Joan Vollmer. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, William Burroughs may or may not have shot her in the head as a result of recreating a William Tell routine or may have been some other things that have come out yeah. over the years. But uh, you said in the song you remember where you were at when you heard that song. And I don't know, just the, the cockroach in me that wants to know <laughs> about these things. <laughs> just based off of my own experience with that exact same experience, I, I was just wondering where you were at with when you heard that. Yeah, I was in, I was in college in Tacoma. I went to school to be a nurse initially because I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do and 
I flunked out um, my first year and left college for a year and came back in that year gap. Just fell in love with writing and read Catcher in the Rye and Travels with Charlie and a couple other books that I was supposed to read in high school and didn't. And, and just, I don't know, it just lit this raging fire in me for writing and reading and went back to school and changed my major to writing and literature and just had a couple really great professors who didn't just like talk about the content but also took the time to meet me for coffee and talk about life stuff and how that fits into writing and so I was early into that program and a professor of mine told me you know you you talk all the time about these guys that you love, these beat generation writers and how they lived and how they wrote. And at the time, I just wanted to write like Kerouac. <laughs> That's, yeah, that was it for me. That, that basically <laughs> sparked me writing for the next, I don't know, 20 years now or more. Yeah. I mean, there's something, I mean, they were all living right on the edge, but there's also this like redemption and nobility that comes from being able to string words together that way. And it kind of, makes or made me at least as a reader forgive a lot of their sins but she this professor said you know why don't you just look into Kerouac and Burroughs specifically into how they lived don't don't focus on what they wrote just see what you can find out about how they lived and how they treated people in their lives and and write about that and it really just fucked me up because <laughs> I I had them, I mean, I knew that they were these like crazy characters, but still they were heroes. And when I really, Kerouac too, you read about just how just alcohol just decimated him and decimated his family and his friends and his community. And, you know, and Burroughs, this whole scene with his young wife and how out of control all that was and how he was able to just, because of his family, just leave that situation. Yeah, and go yeah. on and continue down this very O.J. Simpson, very yeah. Bill Cosby-ish if you want to yeah. go in that terrible, yeah. terrible world. But yeah. And it just put this question in my head of like, is there a cost that we pay? Is there a cost that we pay for immortalizing people, certain people? Or at least a cost for not knowing who these people were fully and instead just making them heroes based on, you know, a handful of books or poems or something. And um, I still love Burroughs. I love Kerouac's writing, but I read it now with this kind of understanding of, at the end of the day, if I had to choose between a recklessly harmful and destructive life, but a life that allowed me to do music on a really high level, or work at a credit union and and be a really, truly authentic and kind person. I really believe that I will choose the credit union every time. Then you're going Bukowski, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're just, you're living on the, the worst of both ends. <laughs> it just doesn't seem worth it. It seems so sad or like... I mean, even in the small bit of time I've been in music and sometimes run into somebody who's wildly successful in music and more often than not, that's a sad interaction. Or more often than not, I find out something about somebody who I think it must be just so happy to be where they are with music, but instead they're just supremely unhappy and alone. And I've thought a lot about that song 
this year and that state of mind just because the pandemic really forced me to look at some demons in a good way but yeah i read queer which sent me into the digging deep into what had happened but that time when the beat writers lit my fire i was studying journalism i just read as much as i could and like the beat writers they got me but i was was a drinker and doing drugs and and just kind of fell into being like oh this is home to me they are making what i'm doing acceptable and i'm being this kind of you know stoic person that's going out and trying to semi treat people kind and i i am kind of guiding more back to kerouac than like bukowski in that but like i (laughs) uh i did i i mean idolized him yeah i even recently like i i know like you said it's like i know everything now but i've just started back at the beginning and i'm like i'm just gonna go back through it to see what it means to me now compared to what it meant to me then yeah have you been reading Kerouac then? Yeah. What's the take on the revisiting it now? Does it hold up for you? It holds up. That's, that's good. It, <laughs> it holds does. up for me too. Yeah, yeah. It holds up. And I even when I write in my journal or something, I realize I'm not writing this for anybody else. I hope that nobody ever reads this. Yeah. But the way that I look at the world, the way that I see, smell, taste, all the sensory and emotions. I, I try and put it into my writing for some yeah. reason. And I feel like that that's what I gained from Kerouac totally. for better or for worse. I always felt like he, like instead of finding some really intellectual way to explain a concept that he wanted to get across, he would do this thing where he would like paint with observation instead. So instead of explaining the thing, he's going to paint the scene. And if you're too dumb to put it together (laughs) and explain it for yourself, then he didn't really give a shit. Yeah. In that way, like I love that, you know, there's some of that, some of Kerouac especially feels biblical at times to me, just in the way that it's like, like I could read this passage every day for the next five years and get something else out of it. Keep peeling back the layers. And I'm certainly not against Burroughs or I love what those guys contributed. I just, it would be really interesting if like, so, say you went to a bookstore and you bought queer junkie or something and in the jacket was a, uh, a short paragraph written by somebody who was deeply hurt by Burroughs. <laughs> Yeah. You know, just yeah, like yeah. enjoy this book. It's brilliant. But just so you know, like this was my experience with Burroughs as a human. So before you like name your first kid Burroughs or something, keep it in mind. And Yeah, it's like listening to the radio and you're like, uh, hey, Michael Jackson's got, you know, we're about <laughs> yeah. to play Beat It. But uh, here's the experience of yeah. this young child that uh, Michael Jackson ruined his fucking life. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I think even like um, coming from my own, I was molested as a kid and the person that molested me, I've had the conversations, you know, at a older age and been like, what the fuck? Yeah. And uh, yeah. they grew up to be like a semi nice family man kind of person. And I don't know. I don't know yeah. what makes it worse. Yeah. And then going back to our original conversation about looking at the world from all these different perspectives, you know, of like there's so many truths that can be the same at the same time. Hmm. And it's it's a soup sandwich, but it's <laughs> it is reality. Well, I didn't I don't know if you had this. I mean, it sounds like you had a similar thing with the beat writers, but with musicians also, uh, I 
for a long time in my 20s, especially when I was starting to play out more. And I felt invalid as a musician because I didn't have like all of my heroes, you know, had these awful stories about <laughs> how they grew up or or, yeah, did, yeah, yeah. or they were just abandoned. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I realized that at some point in my 20s that I was trying to on some level manufacture a trauma that wasn't there or a backstory that wasn't there. And I didn't do it blatantly. I didn't like I lied about where I came from or something, but just kind of, you know, you go to an open mic and or you go to a show and the guy you're opening for, he looks like a musician mm. and he's got some he's got some sad eyes and he's uh, he's got some mysterious stories that allude to some really shitty shit. And like, I don't know, I kind of I would love to find a way to have an ongoing conversation about like in the music world about finding ways to deconstruct that thing. Like you do not need to drink yourself to death before you're 30 in order to be a Towns Van Sant songwriter or Blaze Foley or whatever. There's this immense pressure though. And people that are, I don't know, my age now in Portland, sometimes we talk about, and our musicians, we talk about kind of like, thank God we survived our 20s. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Made it through this time when we were at times trying to be fucked up. Oh, yeah. And, I had a friend that we used to just love Ben Harper, early 20s, late, late teens. And we used to try and go to as many shows as possible. And he fell asleep in an armchair and he ended up being in a coma for a little bit and then he came back out and he, um, I don't know, I guess like mental retardation, like he was. Yeah. He was like a baby, yeah. um, but he was in like a, I can't even remember now, 19 or 20 year old, 21 mm. year old's body. And, and I just was like, well, fuck it. You know, mm. like everything I had been holding back off until now, just, right, right. you yeah. know, put it in six gear and we're, we're ready to go. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I did that for a lot of years. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, I outlived the age that I thought I was going to be. So maybe I should curtail this behavior <laughs> a little bit and uh, and do it. But it, it is, it's interesting, you know, what we go through in our lives. And, I, you know, what you were just talking about, I kind of hope that this, I know I have grandiose ideas, but I hope that this show ends up becoming something that has that kind of effect of hearing all yeah, of these yeah. different people's stories and where they came from and understanding you don't have to die on the cross of alcohol or, or drugs to succeed. Yeah. Or if those are a part of your life, that there's other people out there that are struggling with the same thing and just understanding that we're we're all in it together, you yeah. know, and we're yeah. we're we're trying. Yeah, totally. I hope this podcast becomes that too. I think that's a, a great goal. It just I think for a good ten years I thought there is some bit of wisdom and understanding and, and perspective that's gained from recklessness. Mm, I definitely did. That you can't get otherwise. And if you want to be one of these writers of writers, then you got to go through the shit. And, and I, you know, I never go nearly as hard as other people go. As I did. As, <laughs> as you did, as it sounds like. But I, I feel really sure now that of all the times that I did go like across a line, I didn't gain much from it in retrospect in terms of 
trying to capture something in a song, some aspect of life that people resonate with. You know, oftentimes that's come from the boring, alone, like just, I don't know, deep in my head and deep in reflection and thinking about life and being clear headed enough to sort through shit that's in my own heart. And well, I'm going to just gush on you for a second, because like I said, this you are new in my world and it's just been been in the last month. And so I've just been on this listening kick of Jeffrey Martin. That's great. It's good timing. Yeah. Yeah. It only lasts about a month and then you'll get over it. No, 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 no. It's in my soul now. You're fucked. <laughs> you you get to see me for the rest of your playing career as a result. <laughs> Great. That's good. Yeah, don't don't worry. I'm not gonna drone on about my personal stories at your shows, but you get to see me there. I don't know. Maybe I'll start wearing an eye patch or something so you can recognize me. But I uh I just God, I love music so much and when I hear a new person that I haven't heard I fall so much into it and I've been doing this basically for the last 30 years and I just listen to the same albums over and over again in a row. Yeah. And uh, I just think that you do have something that I just think is incredible in your songwriting and, and like I say, in the empathy and like looking at it from all sides of the coin and uh, I don't know. Oh, thanks, man. Really, it means a lot. I don't want to gush too much. I try not to. <laughs> but there's some times where I'm just like, good God. Like, I listen to Coal Fire, and I, I mean, I want to just go write music. Mm. Like, I yeah. love listening to the song, but it is so inspirational to me when I hear a song that's that fucking good. I just want to leave and just go write music. No, oh, that's the best compliment. That's great. Thanks. I always, I always Anna does this too. Like someone will come through town who we really want to see play and we'll go to the show and about 30 minutes in, it's like a fucking great show and 30 minutes in, I have to leave to go home and write. Like I'm filled up. I can't be here anymore. I got to go home and be alone. And your Humpty like, Dumpty moment is what we call it now. Ever <laughs> since Anna's interview. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, the cup is filled up. You're about to right. fall off the wall. You're about to break and shatter. You got to go. You're at your Humpty Dumpty moment. You got to recognize that. That's like one of my favorite feelings in the world. So I'm glad that Coal Fire can make you want to write. It's great. It does every time. Well, I just looked how long we've been talking. I have, I don't know, eight gazillion questions that I haven't asked you. So it's perfect. So maybe I'll become the one person in the world that you'll uh, do live interviews with. <laughs> That's always my hope. This is my favorite type of interview, really. Any any hesitation I have about interviews, it comes from people approaching it from a really canned, not very real place. And anyway, I appreciate your style. That is the biggest compliment to me. That's what I hope for. But I do always have the two canned questions at the end. <laughs> And the one is, is there anything that we haven't talked about as far as promotional that you want anybody to know about? You can always put all your links and shit in the show notes, but uh, is there anything you want folks to know about that we haven't talked about? Just as like a general message to folks, people are getting pretty inquisitive about when the next album is going to happen. And rightfully so. It's been five years this October. No. Is that <laughs> it's right? A, it's a jaunt. <laughs> Four years? I don't know. Four years, maybe this October, but it feels like a long time. But I'm I'm definitely going to put out another album at some point. There's a lot of songs that came out of this last 16 months that I never would have thought that I would have written. And I really love them. But to me, it feels like a big departure in some ways. 
um, in a way that I can't even describe. But I just want to say I'm really excited about these new songs. And as soon as I'm able, I'll be in a studio somewhere working on something. So so you haven't been in the studio. Though. I haven't been in an official studio. Like, like I'm going to make an album studio, but I've been recording versions of these. So. Very cool. Well, I will just tell you that my wife heard me listening to you today and she said, God damn, his voice is so beautiful. And I said, I know. And I said, <laughs> I am jealous of it every moment that I hear it. And she said, you shouldn't feel about music like that. And then I said, I have been having the same fucking conversation with myself since this morning that I should not compare myself to other people and that I I should just understand the majesty that he has and what it captivates in my soul. But I will tell you, I'm fucking jealous and I feel guilty about that. I think jealousy gets a bad rap. Yeah? Honestly. Yeah, okay, I do. Good, good, good. I'm like deeply jealous of a lot of people. I feel like I'm a decent songwriter and i just love music and i just love playing and i wish that i could be content in that emotion of like <laughs> that song is decent you yeah. know and if jeffrey martin sang it it would be fucking phenomenal but you know <laughs> like uh this is this is the world that i live in i mean how lame would it be to be content with anything you make really i mean that would be like some kindergarten idea of heaven or something it'd be it'd be so boring so fast my daughter and i were walking on a hike recently and it was so fucking hot and sometimes we would hit these shaded trees on this path and it would just go, you know, and the heat would go away and then we would come back into the sun and then sometimes this breeze was blowing through and, and I was like, doesn't that feel so nice? And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, if you had an experience, sorry, this is my dog. He's a big part of the show. I said, if you hadn't experienced that heat, you would never totally. have experienced the comfort of the wind. Yeah. And I said, and that is something to think about for the rest of your life, that you, you have to have the ups and the downs in order to be able to experience the positives. I said, if you get stuck in a world where you're just like everything's on top, sometimes the slightest things can make your world feel undone. And I said, but sometimes you can be at the bottom and be at the happiest you've ever been. Because totally. once you get those in your life, you really feel how special the good times are. No, I completely agree. Is there any words of wisdom, any sage advice, or anything that you've been experiencing personally that you've been thinking about that you think would be good words for our listeners? I've been thinking a lot about if someone, like if someone was observing my life and I didn't know they were observing my life, would their write-up about who I am match up with who I think I am? And if not, why? And so I've been thinking a lot about the people that know me well, do they know me to be the things that I aspire to be? Or do they know me as something else? And yeah, so I've just been thinking a lot about like the action, I guess. I'm really good at having ideas, and I'm really bad at turning them into action. And I think we could all, as a country right now, do with a little more <laughs> a little more action uh, isn't that a song isn't that a song <laughs> yeah yeah i'll make sure to put it in okay i hope someday i i cross your path in the musical world whether Absolutely. it's just as a fan or maybe as a 
a co-musician on some so bill, but you're in Denver. Yeah, I'll be out that way as soon as I can. But so I'm a nerd fan now, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna stalk you and do all those things. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and just being honest and genuine and just like that's all i can hope for oh thanks for having me all right well brother i look forward to when you come back out to the world and when you put out a new album every four or five years but uh <laughs> if you uh if you feel the need i have eight thousand questions that i did not even touch i would love to do a round two well, let's do a round two. Make sure whenever we got this new one coming out, we do a round yeah. two and try and get out to as many folks as possible. Sounds great. All right, brother. Well, thank you. All right. Have a good one. You too. Summer's in around the beam, just flying. The swimming suits are on the line, just Dry. John Prine. Yeah, you got it. I did. I win. What's the name of the song? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so you lost then. Well, so wait, no, that's not how the game works. The game works. That you way. change the rules of the game literally every week. It's my game. It's called I Win. It's the only mm -hmm. time that yeah. I get to play a game in our you relationship yep. where I win. You're so I. I get one game a week You're right. where I win. And so this is in that moment. I think that game is great. So John Prine released The Tree of Forgiveness in 2018, which included the song Summer's In. It was his first new album of original material in 13 years. Due to complications from COVID, it ended up being his final studio album. This next excerpt is a slightly edited summary from an article in countrythangdaily.com in 2020, but had some important info. So, was there an A in the word thing? Yep, for sure. Wow. Okay. Summer's End helped the album become Prine's highest charting album on the Billboard 200 and an obvious choice for Rolling Stone's 50 Best Albums of 2018. Summer's End earned a Best American Roots Song nomination during the 2018 Grammy Awards and was named Best Song of 2018 by the American Songwriter Magazine. What I personally didn't know was that Prine used that song to address the opioid crisis in the country. And Summer's End is a heartbreaking plea to a loved one to come home as the man in the song ponders on the passing of time. If you listen to it from the perspective of someone dealing with an addict and also from the addict perspective, it, it really makes a lot of sense and, mm -hmm. and hits home. So Crystal. So Marcus. When I spoke to you previously, you said that Jeffrey's voice occasionally reminded you of an actor that you would not let me know about. I wanted to save it for the wrap up. Okay. Well, I just wanted to put you on the spot, but if you wanted to save it for the wrap up, then it makes it less exciting for me. But would you let me and the listeners know who the actor is that you were thinking of? Woody Harrelson. Okay. All right. I mean, his voice when he sings sometimes has a very like 
Ray LaMontagne kind of feel. And when he's talking, he sounds very Woody Harrelson, which I don't know where Woody Harrelson was brought up. I was wondering if maybe it was an accent thing that I just wasn't crazy familiar with, because sometimes I'll confuse people's accents with the sounds of their voice because I uh, don't really understand accents. Just because... Cheers. It was like our family show that we all watched together. Mm-hmm. We always watched Cheers as a family. That's because your parents let you stay up too late at night. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay. Cheers was our show. That and Moonlighting. And oh, really? Woody was from Indiana. And so no connection there. No, Woody the character. Oh, Woody the character was. Because Woody was the barback. Oh, that's right. His yeah. name was actually Woody in the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, And I don't know if that is his real home place, but uh, mm. we'll we'll save it for the next wrap-up. Yeah, no, I can never tell. Like, a, I can't tell a Georgia from a Tennessee from a Texas. Anyway, so during Jeffrey and I's discussion tonight, because that's who we're actually here to talk about, uh, we talked about the recurring theme of beat writers a lot. Mm-hmm. You guys really took a deep dive on beat we writers. Did. And a huge inspiration for me as a writer, reader, and the way I saw and continuously see the world was uh, was Jack Kerouac and the beat writers. But as Jeffrey and I addressed, not all of these people were perfect people and they didn't all need to be put on pedestals. However, their writing inspired a generation. Several. And uh, the next generation and mm-hmm. then continue to inspire generations today. But the majority of the work to be included in this grouping came out of the 50s and then the subsequent 60s. This generation was birthed as a follow-up to World War II. And this group of writers and artists had lived through the war and the depression and then the following post-war economic boom. And as they witnessed the boom in capitalism, they questioned society and its norms. They saw a lot of destruction in capitalism. Shocking. But uh, they wanted to... What? What has ever gone wrong with capitalism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, I get it. Capitalism, bad rap. There's some people like Elizabeth Warren who are now promoting, like, we just need to reimagine what capitalism is. I think if we look at it as a very black and white thing, yeah, that's a really easy conclusion to come up with. I like the idea of reimagining things. And also existing on a spectrum of economic structures. I think if you take capitalism and go straight to communism, yes, of course, that's not effective. But in my most idealistic time, definitely drew to more of a, we're all in this together. And I say it at the end of every Mm -hmm. episode, and I, I still agree that there is a community aspect to living in a more level playing field. That seems... Are we looking for some sort of word that means socialism? That leans towards... But anyway, they saw destruction in capitalism and they wanted to drink, smoke, fuck, and thought that societal norms needed to be rethought. And I'm going to blame Desert Storm and maybe I didn't have a good excuse But uh, I thought the same way when I was in college. Yeah, most college students would probably line up with those ideals. I guess that's generalizing, but... And I'm 41 now, and now I'm going to believe Afghanistan. (laughs) (laughs) But I also am dedicated to my loyal and loving wife, Crystal Gillis. So I just want to drink, smoke, and fuck with you. And I'm trying not to drink anymore, so (laughs) I want to smoke. And then I'm really, I'm just vaping. Okay, we're moving on. Yeah, let's keep going. All right. 
these ideals came out in their writing of novels, poetry, and art in a more straightforward and less hand-to-mouth writing than had been previously conceived. They also loved jazz and thus beat poetry is often set to jazz. The founders of the quote-unquote beat generation were Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and Neil Cassidy, along with others that had met in or around and after Jack Kerouac's short stint at Columbia University. Ginsberg was known to have palled around and played music with Bob Dylan and the post-beat gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. He was actually a part of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review tour in 1975, and Ginsberg also had close ties to Timothy Leary's acid movement. Drugs. Drugs. The beat writers in the beat generation were the anti-establishment, and thus I fell in love with their writing, but I think in large part because I found that the writers were writing 40 to 50 years before my time and having the same thoughts as myself in the late 90s, and they saw the world as I often saw it. Not surprisingly, this group also came from the upper lower class and lower middle class folks or just middle middle, whatever you want to call it. Mm. It's a thing from Caddyshack 2, which was a real, uh, a real bummer. But uh, is Bill Murray in that one, too? He is not. Oh, yeah. Why did they bother doing that? Chevy Chase might have had a small part. I really don't know. I kind of I blocked it from my mind. But anyway, there was a whole thing about upper lower class, middle lower class. And I eventually I aspire to be middle middle or something like that or lower middle or something along those lines. Moving on, I think it came from these set of writers being blessed with a good education, but also having a self-awareness and capability to see the flaws of the capitalist society that many of them were actually benefiting from, Mm. which uh, I find in myself and hard to deal with sometimes. I want to be the little man, but then I also know as a now middle-aged. That you're kind of doing just fine, maybe. Lower middle class, white American male that uh, really I'm benefiting from all of the Mm -hmm. things of U.S. society. and Yep, just having a little bit of awareness. But I'm like, fuck the man, fucking punk rock, fuck you. So Kerouac is marked as the one that came up with the term beat generation. And the term beat is an implication of folks that are beaten down and walked over by society. Hmm. Joseph McCarthy was probably not surprisingly not a fan. That was a lot of like double negatives, but he thought that they were spreading communist ideals. Shocking. But they were also known to be proponents of Native American in Eastern philosophies. I also latched onto that a bit. But uh, Jeffrey Martin wrote a song called Billy Burroughs, mm-hmm. which is a, uh, I think it's just his nickname for William Burroughs. I don't think that William Burroughs is known as Billy Burroughs, but Jeffrey is known as Jeff, who is old family and friends, and I'm known as Mark. Williams are often shortened to other things. To Billy. Yeah. My little brother tried to go by Billy for a couple of years, and nobody went for it because he is most certainly a Willie. I just pulled a eyelash out of my mouth. I hope that's going to really change my ability to to speak. But we talked about Burroughs a bit and the death of Jane Vollmer. Jane was the common law wife of Burroughs that also gave birth to his son, William Burroughs Jr. Bubba. The dog didn't respond that time when you said it. I know he didn't. But so in the South, when somebody's a junior, a lot of times their nickname is Bubba. Mm -hmm. And so I call our dog Bubba. And that's because he's my junior. He does look just like you. 
He does. We have similar facial features. But uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from a write-up in Beatdom, B-E-A-T-T-O-M.com by Lauren Canner that surmises Burroughs' life really well without being too long. And uh, I kind of surmised her summation. Is that a word? Mm. But the article is entitled, Why Did William Burroughs Shoot His Wife? Burroughs was born in 1914 in St. Louis, grandson of the inventor of the adding machine and founder of Burroughs Corporation. He was sent to a boarding school for the wealthy in New Mexico, where he wrote in his journal about his attraction to boys. He went to Harvard, where he studied English and anthropology. His family sold the rights to his grandfather's invention just before the 1929 stock market crash. And then after that, Burroughs got an allowance for basically 20 or 30 years, something along the lines that allowed him to just basically do whatever the fuck he wanted. But anyway, Burroughs briefly attended medical school in Vienna. In Austria, he became involved with Weimar era gay culture. Do you think that there is any connection to the dog Weimariner in Weimar era? How do you spell Weimariner? I don't know. Again, we're just making a mess of this wrap up because we're coming up with all these other things that we need to fact check. <laughs> all right. And I don't think that this is necessarily a path we want to go down. All right. So Burroughs had all the liaisons with men in steam baths. Something tells me that he would have been less interested in like the pit toilet meetups in Echo Park in the 20th century. Okay. The pit toilets? Yeah. Well, I just remember when I lived in Los Angeles, like whenever you had to park and you were male, you weren't supposed to park close to the toilets because that was like an indication to another male that you were like waiting to go in to have a sexual liaison. That sounds like an urban legend stupid thing. Well, I guess I don't know. I never lived there and I've never been a male. This is actually great. This is fantastic for all the behaviors that women have to second guess ourselves and think twice about for fear of sexual assault. I guess I appreciate very much that men in LA have to think about where they park their cars in the park. And it wasn't even a big deal. Like I got one proposition one time. Oh, really? And then I told my friends about it and they were like, where were you at? And I was like, well, I was parked here at the park and we were waiting to go shoot this thing. And they were like, well, were you by yourself? And I was like, yeah, I was just sitting in my truck. And they were like, well, yeah, that's the area by the toilets. And that's where guys go to sit to have meetups. Interesting. So, so there was no fear of violence or anything. And there was no real negative outcome to it other than maybe just one other disappointed male that was... Right. Just a slightly uncomfortable situation. Slightly, yeah. So it was definitely not in the female scare kind of situation. Back to Burroughs. Post steam bass. At this time, he meets Clapper, the girl in Croatia, and allowing her to obtain a visa, they move back to the States, they divorced, and then Burroughs continues his liaisons with men. Burroughs was definitely a messed up young fellow. And in a Van Gogh devotion of love in 1939, Burroughs cut off the joint of his little finger above the knuckle to impress a man to whom he was attracted to. Shortly after, he enlisted in the army and was accepted into the infantry, not an officer. He grew depressed and was released from the military for mental instability. Subsequently, or because Burroughs was a little bit older than the rest of the beat writers, but Kerouac was also released from the military for mental instability. What years? Do you remember seeing that? Uh, 
Burroughs and Kerouac would have been like early 1940s. So during World War II. Yes. Were released from the, they were too mentally messed to go into that. They were too mentally screwed up to go get killed in the military. Okay. Wow. In 1943, Burroughs moved to New York. He attended writing salons at the apartment of Jane Vollmer. These gatherings included future B generation writers, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Burroughs and Vollmer shared an apartment with Kerouac and his future wife, Edie Parker. Burroughs began using heroin. His battle with addiction would be a lifelong struggle. He was arrested for a prescription narcotics violation and moved back to St. Louis to live with his parents. Volmer, addicted to Benzedrine, was diagnosed with temporary psychosis and admitted to Bellevue. This put her custody of her daughter at risk. Learning this, Burroughs returned to New York, asked Volmer to marry him. They never formally married, but she lived as his common-law wife, and the two would have a son together, William Burroughs Jr. Bubba. Bubba. The couple moved to New Orleans. Facing possible detention in Angola State Prison for drug charges, the couple fled with their son in Mexico. Angola. Angola. We've discussed this before. Quantum Leap Back to Abolition Apostles. That's what it was. I was like trying to put charity angels together and that's not it. It's our only bonus episode. Yeah. We put out two in a week and it about killed me. <laughs> it was a really interesting interview. By the way, if you have a chance, go back, listen to it. It's one of our lower listened to interviews of all time and it's probably one of the most interesting not connected to music that there is some music discussion in it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Jane Vollmer and William Burroughs plan to live abroad until the statute of limitations on his charges expired. But life in Mexico was difficult. Unable to acquire heroin, Burroughs suffered through brutal detox symptoms. He abused Benzedrine and frequented Mexican gay bars in pursuit of men. Vollmer drank excessively and mocked Burroughs in front of his friends. Their drug-fueled fights grew violent. On the evening of September 6, 1951, coming up very soon, not 1951, but September 6, Burroughs and Volmer met several friends at a party at an American-owned bar in Mexico City. The details remain disputed, but Burroughs allegedly took a handgun from his travel bag and said to Volmer, it's time for William Tellect. I don't think that person. was his voice. Well, I wanted to say it in something different, so I didn't have to say in quotes. Oh. Okay. Volmer, who was drunk and suffering through amphetamine withdrawal, placed a highball glass on her head. Burroughs aimed and fired. The bullet struck Volmer in the face. She died a few hours later. She was 28. Pretty tragic. Woof. God, will you stop saying that? What is this, home alone? Why do you keep saying woof? It's just an expression like, ugh. Yeah, but it's something that you've been saying recently. Why is this a problem? I don't know. I don't know why it For triggers two. me. But it does. So Burroughs initially claimed he dropped a gun and it accidentally fired. He spent 13 days in a Mexico City jail while his brother traveled to Mexico and bribed officials to release Burroughs on bail. He hired a prominent Mexican attorney, a 20. Two witnesses testified the gun accidentally fired while Burroughs was checking to see if it was loaded. While awaiting trial, Burroughs' lawyer fled Mexico to escape his own legal troubles. <laughs> 
So Burroughs promptly left the country himself and returned to the United States. He was convicted in absentia of homicide and given a two-year suspended sentence. Since he never returned to Mexico, his sentence would never be served. Two years for murder, huh? Yeah, but he didn't have to serve it. Right, right. There wasn't a lot of extradition back to Mexico in the day, nor still. I, don't I was going to say, I don't know that that's still a thing. Oh, and I know you're not going to be thrilled about this. Oh, good. I love things I'm not thrilled about. But Jeffrey's closing remark, and so I can't help but take the world out with the words of the one and only Elvis Presley. He was just describing life and then made the comment of, isn't that the lyric of a song? And this song was recorded in 1968, but not released until 1970. And though it was recorded and released through RCA, it was not recorded at RCA Studio B in Nashville, which we recently toured. We toured that. And it's called A Little Less Conversation. And it goes a little something like this. A little less conversation, a little more action, please. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. We don't get to play this game twice in a little more bite and little less bark, little less fight and little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and baby satisfy me. Okay. We good? Yeah. Awesome. I didn't play a game. I gave you all the precursors. Yeah, that is true. You just got a a you just got a twofer for the me singing to you, which you love. Also, that song was in the movie Lilo and Stitch, which is it was. one of my favorites of all time. And I believe that that was at the same time when the song was re-released with like some DJ. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some major DJ that did it. And it became like top of the Billboard charts mm-hmm. in that re-release. I didn't really write that down here, but I just heard a, I heard an interview recently with that DJ and I can't remember who it was, but I think they went on to be a film composer. Well, that would make sense. That's all. Okay. And I love you. Love you. And... <laughs> That didn't sound genuine, Crystal. It didn't? No. Oh. Okay. It's like that movie. I just was mentioning this the other day. It was their magician, The Prestige. Okay. And so, spoiler alert, there's a twin in the movie. And sometimes she's like, today you don't love me. Because she was living Dealing with, with two separate people. That looked identical. Mm-hmm. And so. So she thought she was dealing with somebody with like multiple personalities. Maybe? Right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And I will just say today you don't love me Mm, it's my sister okay good well please join us on patreon patreon.com backslash live from banjo podcast and just remember kid we're all in this together 